Hi, my name is Rhett Barton, and I'm the lead pastor of One Life Church, and I want to thank you for joining us today. At One Life Church, we exist to help you know God, find freedom, discover your purpose, and make a difference. For more information on how you can be a part, please visit us online at olc.church. Enjoy the message. Well, all right, welcome to One Life Church again. It's so good to see you. Are you guys excited to be at church today, everybody? Awesome. Well, it's an honor to have you with us. If you're just now joining us or you're joining us online, my name is Rhett. I'm the lead pastor here at One Life Church, and it's the joy of my life to get to serve you. Before we jump into a message today, we're calling He Came to Bring Life. I want to do something we do every Sunday, and that is I want to look into this camera and church family. I want you to throw your hands together and welcome our online church family right now. Come on, let them know how much you love them. I want you to know that you are our family. We love you. We are sending you some air high fives and air fist bumps from the Nampa Civic Center today. We cannot wait to see you soon. All right, you guys. Hey, we are starting a message today that I cannot wait to bring you called He Came to Bring Life. But before I do, guys, I want to remind you, guess what next Sunday is? Easter Sunday it is a Super Bowl of all Sundays. I'm telling you, you have never had a better opportunity to invite a family member or a friend to somebody to come and experience the love and the life-giving message of Jesus Christ and have a little bit of fun in the process. Can I get a good amen? I'm telling you, I want you to do three things for me, One Life Church family, because most of you here today are family because it's spring break weekend, right? And all the faithful and the strong, we're here today, right? And so here's the three things that I want to invite you to do. I want you to pray. Everybody say pray. pray. Why do I want you to pray? I want you to pray for a couple of reasons. Number one, because a message and great worship and great lights and great people can't change a life. But you know who can change a life? God. And in his presence, in his presence, there is life change. And so I'm just asking you as a church to pray and to ask God to move in a powerful way. Because guys, I don't know if you know this or not, but our church is growing. We're probably going to have a little over 300 people here this Easter Sunday based off of times past. And that's pretty exciting for a lot of reasons. Not just so we have a great time and a lot of people in the room. No, but I need you to understand something. Every number has a name. Every name has a story, and every story matters to God. And because they matter to God, they matter to us. And we want to do everything we can to create an environment for them to walk away feeling value being added to their life by experiencing the love and the hope and the joy that is Christ Jesus. So I want you to pray that not only that God shows up and moves powerfully, but I want you to pray for somebody that you can invite. I want you to invite somebody. Like, I want you to, like, send somebody a story shout-out and be like, hey, Easter Sunday, One Life Church, you ought to join us. I want you to get on TikTok and do all your, like, dancing. Be like, come on to welcome. Come to One Life Church for Easter. Come on, where are all my young people at? <laughs> Whatever that is, I don't know. But, right, whatever you got to do, just invite somebody to church. Because I'm telling you, can I just be honest with you for a second? The greatest joy of your life is when you see one of your friends or lost loved one give their heart to Christ. In fact, it will become the greatest service that you will remember for the history of all services. When at the end of the service, I say, hey, will you bow your heads and close your eyes? Nobody looking around. I'm going to give you permission to peek. Why? Because you invited your lost friend. And what's going to happen is, is when I say every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around, and I've given you permission to peek, you're going to look over and you're going to see a little tear stream down their face. And when their hand goes up and they say, I just want to give my life to Christ, I want to experience hope. I want to experience love. I'm telling you, that moment is going to be the greatest joy and the greatest moment that you've ever experienced in your entire life is that your life made an eternal difference in the life of another person. And I'm telling you, there's no greater joy. So I want you to pray. I want you to invite. And here's the last thing I want you to do. Guys, I want you to participate. I want you to participate. You're like, well, I'm not on the dream team. I just come to church, show up, sit down, have a good time, and leave. Well, can I just tell you, that day exists no more. I am deputizing you in the name of Jesus Christ. You are a greeter from here on out, okay? If you got, two, if you got lips, got eyes, you can smile. And what I want you to do is next week, I want you to participate. If you're on the dream team, of course, I want you to serve with all your heart, with all your soul. And if you're just a guest and you're hanging out, I just want you to just smile. And I'm telling you, there is nothing better than, nothing more powerful, in my opinion, than a, just, than a smile. You know what I'm saying? Isn't it amazing how it just brightens your day? You're just like, hey, smiling. Say, now you're smiling. I'm smiling. Now you're smiling, right? 
It's amazing how like contagious a smile can be. And so you're right, Red, can a smile really make a difference in somebody's life? Yes, it can. And so I want to participate. Every single one of you are greeters. Next Sunday, invite, pray, and let's have a lot of fun as we celebrate the, res- the risen, resurrected Savior, the Son of God, the living God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ in all his glory next Sunday. Come on, if you're excited about that, put your hands together. Yeah. So it's going to be good. It's going to be good. So uh, what we're going to do today is I'm going to bring you a message entitled, He Came to Bring Life. And before we get into it, we are a message note-taking church. What does that mean? It means we like to take notes. And so I want to encourage you to go to olc.church. Pull out your smartphone, pull out your laptop, whatever digital device you've walked in here with today, and go to olc.church, swipe down, and click the button that says message notes. Because my friends, my desire isn't just to inspire you on a Sunday. I mean, that's, that's important. But I want you to walk out of here today with some tools in your hand to be able to apply in your life and some things for you to be able to remember of what God's done in your life so that you can experience the freedom of Christ, not only on Sunday, but on the rest of the days of the week. For all my note takers out there, are you enjoying the notes? Say amen if you are. Help a brother out, right? And so if you're not a note taker, can I encourage you? Try, why not try out being a note taker today? Well, you might do something you've never done before. You might just get something you've never received before. So all right, we're gonna have a lot of fun today. He came to bring Life. I'm going to show you this theme verse today. It came out of John chapter 10, 10. It says, I have come. Jesus himself says, hey, guys, One Life Church, I have come that you might have life. We could stop right there, say amen, take up an offering and go home. This is good preaching right here. I want you to understand something. Jesus Christ did not come to take something from your life. He came to add value to your life. He came so that you could experience life in your mind, in your body, in your spirit, in your soul, in your home, in your marriage, in your finances, at work, in every area of your life. But wait, there's more. Not only does he want you to experience life, look at the rest of the verse. He wants you to have life to the full. You know what this word full means? It means he wants to give you life beyond excess, beyond expectation, beyond your wildest imagination. Jesus Christ has come so that you can have life and life to the full. And my friends, I'm telling you, this is our hope for you today. This is our hope for you every Sunday. This is our hope for your life, your marriage, and your home, and every relationship you walk in is that you're experiencing the truth that, of, of what Christ has come to do for you. And here's the big idea today, and this, you're going to hear this a lot. Jesus did not die just to pay for your sins so that you could go to heaven. Now, that's important, but Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice so that not only you could experience life in heaven, but that heaven could come alive in your heart here on earth. And that you can experience life in joy and abundance. And there is no greater joy, my friends, than walking in relationship with God. And this is why David prayed. I love this. Look at this. Psalm 1611. God, you will show me the way of life. You'll grant me the joy. Everybody say joy. The joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. So what is David saying here? David's basically saying, hey, guys, I've come to realize something, that the greatest joy in your life isn't dependent upon your circumstances, but the greatest joy in your life is walking in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. The greatest joy is knowing that your life is moving from where you are to where God wants you to be. The greatest joy is when your life goes on a spiritual journey. And I'm just telling you, your life, according to scripture, your life will never make sense. Your life will never be satisfied. Your life will never be fulfilled until you not only see what God has for you, but you begin to experience what God has for you. Why? Because the verse is like this, Proverbs 29, 18. Guys, if people can't see what God is doing, like if you can't see the spiritual journey and the next step and the path of life that God wants to take you on through Jesus Christ, you will stumble all over yourself. But, I love this, but when you and I, when we attend to what God reveals, in other words, when we discover the path of life, when we discover the spiritual journey that God wants to take us on, when we discover that God wants to move us from where we are to where he wants us to be, then the byproduct, my friends, is that they, you and I, are what? We are most blessed. We're blessed. And my hope, my friends, is that you experience the blessing of God in every area of your life. 
My hope is just as Proverbs says, I don't want you just to, just to see what God is doing. I want you to see it, but then I want you to attend to it. I want you to live it out to what he reveals. So what I want to do today is I really want to help you take a next step on your spiritual journey. We're like, well, Pastor Red, I mean, I appreciate all this talk about spiritual journey stuff, but I'm really not buying into it. Well, my friend, I'm glad you're here, but it, just the fact that you don't believe it doesn't change the truth that you and I, my friends, we're on a spiritual journey. In fact, your life is being lived in every area, in every way to try to find this first step, and that is coming to know God. Know God. God wants you to know him. Let me say it this way. God is not looking for religion. God is looking for a relationship. God never intended to send his one and only son to die a horrific sacrifice to pay for your sins so you could just show up, play church, and do some kind of dead religion. No, God gave his best for you so you could experience a relationship in the power and authority of Christ in your life today, this side of heaven. And I am not talking about religion. I'm talking about a relationship. I'm not talking about going to church. No, God wants to be with you and walk with you daily. Every day, he wants to know you personally. And this is the first step of every single one of our lives in our spiritual journey. But wait, there's other steps for us to take because God intended more for us than just salvation. Salvation and relationship then leads us to finding freedom. Everybody say, find freedom. Find freedom. What am I talking about? I'm saying God wants to deliver you from the past so that you can see the significance of the future that he has for your life. In other words, when we get saved, our spirit man is saved. We're spirit, soul, and body, triune being. Spirit, when we give our heart to Christ, surrender our life, we experience a transformation, a miracle. We're going to heaven, our spirit's saved. But guess what? Our soul and our body have a little bit of time to catch up to it. Why? Because we've experienced a lot of bad habits along the way. We've experienced a lot of pain along the way. And sometimes that's just doesn't happen of healing, just immediate. It takes time. And so God wants to deliver you from the pain of your past. And there's process and a step to that, and we want to help you with that, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that today. In fact, this is what the message is all about. So from find freedom, we go into this process of what we call discovering our purpose. In other words, there's two great days in your life. Number one, the day you were born. Number two, it's the day you discover why you were born. And 89% of Christians around the country and around the world today do not have a clue on why they're on this planet. And I want to tell you, if that's you today, God has created you as a masterpiece, handcrafted in the master's hand, on purpose, for a purpose, and it wasn't just to pay taxes, suck air, and die. Is April 15th here yet? <laughs> God has more for you. God didn't just create you and go, huh, I wonder what I want to do with him. I don't know. Why don't we just like do that? No, God had something for you to do. Then he created you. And there's a part of discovering this process. And we want to help you with that as a church on your spiritual journey. And then that leads us to the fourth step, which is make a difference. And I said it earlier when I kind of gave you an example of making a difference by inviting somebody to Easter Sunday. There's no greater joy that you will ever experience than to know that your life made an eternal difference in the life of somebody else by just simply inviting them on TikTok, right? Whatever. Y'all don't leave me hanging up here. I'm just having a little bit of fun. There are tissues on this table for a reason. I'm trying to find laughter where we can find laughter this morning. Because most people, can I just be honest with you, most, most churches on Easter Sunday, they talk a lot about the death of Christ and the blood of Christ. But next Sunday should be a celebration. It should be a celebration of the risen, exalted king. The death could not hold him down. The grave does not exist anymore. We've gone from death to life. That's what next Sunday is all about. But today, what we're going to focus on, we're going to focus on the power of the cross. Today, we're going to be talking about freedom. Everybody say freedom. freedom. There's a couple of ways you can find freedom. One of the ways you'll hear at One Life Church a lot, and it's the primary way we help people, is through small groups. What are small groups? They're that. <laughs> They're groups that are small, that, we can, that meet on a weekly basis to provide an opportunity for you to connect with other life-giving people. Why is that important? It's important that you don't do life alone. Why? Because the Word of God teaches us that life change happens in life-giving relationships. I didn't say perfect relationships. I said life-giving relationships. And so small groups are important. They play, a, they play in a very important role in the process of you finding freedom. Why? Because James 5.16, it's not on the screen, tells us that if you'll get in an environment and get close to somebody and you'll confess your sins to that person, not everybody, but just get real authentic and go, yo, I got some issues. 
I need some help. Will you pray for me? James 5.16 says, if you'll confess and you'll pray for one another, you will find healing. You'll find healing. Healing happens in relationship. The process for finding freedom, the process for finding healing in all our lives is people. This is God's design. So this is very important, but I don't want to talk to you today about small groups. Really what I want to talk to you today is that the greatest way beyond relationships with other people, the greatest way that you and I, my friends, will ever find freedom comes through the power of the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. So for the next few minutes, I cannot wait to describe in detail the power of the cross. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross, look at this is foolishness to those who are perishing. In other words, to the world, y'all just a bunch of crazy Christians. Y'all do y'all little thing, y'all little weird, but keep it in a box. Y'all crazy. It's foolishness. They don't understand it. But to you and I who are taking next steps on our spiritual journey of knowing God, finding freedom, discovering purpose, making a difference with our life, experiencing joy and this transformation of our soul, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God that is at work within us. And this is why I want to remind you today, my friends, Jesus just did not die on the cross, a horrific death, just to pay for your sins so that you could experience heaven. Jesus gave his life so that you could experience authority and the power of Christ, of heaven on earth, in your life. And in every area of your life. I love John's revelation of Jesus in the end times, Revelation 12, 10 through 11. John says, then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. He's referring to Christ's return. Look at what he says. It has come at last. Salvation. In other words, forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Jesus. But wait, there's more. Look at this. And the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. You guys, many of us, we have salvation. Like, man, we love God. You're good people. And your sins are forgiven. You're going to spend eternity in heaven, and it's going to be glorious. But what I want to remind you today is that God wants you to experience more than just heaven. He wants you to experience more than just salvation. He wants you to experience more than just forgiveness of sins. He wants you to experience the power and the authority of his one and only son, Christ Jesus. Why? Because it's through the power of the cross. It's through the power of the blood of Jesus that you and I, my friends, find freedom. So look at the rest of the verse. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. We're talking about Satan, Lucifer, the devil. It says he's the one who accuses them before our God day and night. It says, and they, who's they? That's you, that's me, that's we. That's the men and women of God, those who profess faith in Christ, those who surrender their life to Jesus Christ. They have done what? They have defeated him. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. If you believe that, come on, say a good amen and give praise to God today. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, there's power. Turn to your other neighbor and say, there's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. I wish I could tell you that the rest of this message is going to be all butterflies, rainbows, and unicorns, and we're all just going to be laughing a lot, but we're really not. We're about to get really serious here because we're about to remember all that Christ has done for us and the journey and the road that he endured from the night of his betrayal to the pain he faced on the cross. And so Thursday night, leading up to this Thursday night, um, before Good Friday, Christians call Good Friday good, but honestly, can I just be real with you? There was nothing good about Good Friday. <laughs> it was good for us. It was horrible for Jesus. But what we see the night before Good Friday is Jesus is hanging out with his crew, with his family and friends, with his disciples, his buddies. And he's celebrating, along with just the rest of the, Jew, the Jews, they're celebrating Passover meal together, taking food and drink and just having a good time. And what happens is after they partake of the meal, Judas Iscariot, which you've probably heard of, even if you're not a Christian today, Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve and he was a treasurer. In other words, he was the one that was put in control of the money bag. Like he knew what the money was all about. And so Judas Iscariot, Iscariot, he took a piece of bread and after he ate it, he dipped, ducked and dive and he was out. Why? Because something happened. It said the word of God says that the devil himself actually entered Judas and he began to betray Christ because there were people in the day that were looking to kill Christ. It was the religious leaders. Imagine that, right? 
So the religious leaders were looking for people or find a way. Where is Christ? Where is he? We want to kill him. Judas knew this, so Judas knew that he could earn a buck off of turning Christ in. And so Judas goes in the night and he goes to the religious leaders and he says, hey, I can tell you where Jesus is. In fact, I'll show you where he is if you'll pay up. And so they're like, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver, which like in today's language, that's like the price of a used car. That's not very much money to turn over the savior of the world. (laughs) Somebody who lived a perfect, sinless life. But he said, "If if you'll pay me, I'll show you where he is. And so Judas knew exactly where Jesus was going to go after their meal because it was custom for Jesus after they would do this to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just a beautiful garden. Jesus loved to be outdoors. He loved lakes. He loved water. He's the man, and he loved gardens. And so he was praying at the Garden of Gethsemane. And what he was doing in that moment is he was getting his heart aligned with God because he was preparing himself for the pain that he was about to endure. And by the way, if you know you're about to go through something, one of the best things you can do is align your heart with God before you go through the process of that pain. So as he finished praying in the garden, most of his disciples, they were asleep. He looks up, there's Judas with an entourage of Roman guards and the religious leaders. And Judas basically identifies Jesus. They arrest Jesus. He's an innocent man, and they begin to try him at night. In fact, it was against the law, not only for Roman law, but it was against the law for Jewish law to try anyone at night. But they tried an innocent man at night anyway, and this is where the road to the pain of the cross all began for Jesus, around 9 p.m. on Thursday night. The Bible says, look at this, Matthew 26, 59 through 60. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony. In other words, they were looking for people to lie about Jesus. In fact, they even began to pay people to come up with lies about Christ. Because why? Because they couldn't find any faults in the man. He was perfect. In fact, not only was he perfect, he is perfect. But they couldn't find any faults, so they had to come up with false accusations. Why? Because they wanted to put him to death. They were tired of all the talk about Jesus. And the Bible says they found none. But then the Bible actually goes on a couple of verses later and says they actually did find something that Jesus was guilty of. Look at this, Matthew 26, verse 63 through 64 and 67. They said, tell us. Hey, Jesus, tell us if you're the Christ. Which, by the way, this word Christ, what does it mean? It simply means the one who has the power of God to set you free. Tell us if you're the one who has the power from God to set us free. Tell us if you're the one sent from God to have the power for us to find freedom in our lives. Tell us. Tell us if you're the son of God. And Jesus said to them, it's as you said. And then they were furious. They were furious. They began to spit in his face. They began to beat him. And others struck him with the palm of their hands. And this is where Jesus began to experience the worst execution in human history. Have you ever wondered why God chose to send Jesus in this specific timeline of history? Think about it. God could have chose any timeline, any place for Christ to come and pay for sins. If he were to send him today to pay for sins, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen to Jesus? Lethal injection, probably. But why was it that God chose to put his one and only son in a time period where execution was the worst? I honestly think it was because he wanted to choose that time to show how great his love was for you and I. You know what blows my mind? What blows my mind is there was a man named Isaiah who 800 years before the crucifixion, y'all follow, do not miss this, 800 years before the crucifixion of Christ, a man by the name of Isaiah had a vision from God and he saw Christ and what Christ would go through in specific detail. And this is what I want to share with you today. Look at this. Isaiah 53, 5, 800 years before Christ, he saw this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, or some other translations may say stripes, but by his wounds or stripes, we are healed. So I want to preach from this 
passage of scripture today and you've seen the four things that are highlighted. And what I want you to see today are there are four things that Christ experienced on the cross or in the process of crucifixion. He experienced them, why? For our freedom. And what I'm gonna do today is I'm gonna give them to you in chronological order. So one of the first things that Jesus would have, under, uh, would have went through once he was turned over to the Roman guards and is uh, the, the Romans, when it came to execution and preparing people for crucifixion, they had a, what they call like a scourging post or a whipping post. And basically what they would do is they would bring the person who is set to be executed, basically put them on a pole, put them on their knees and have them bend over, and then they would begin to whip them with a whip. Now, if you've ever seen a movie of a crucifixion scene, the movies get it wrong. The movies show a whip and they just kind of slap them. It's like the leather just flies off. It's like they're just giving them like some little, you know, minor flesh wounds. But that's not the kind of whip the Roman soldiers used. History would tell us that they used what they called a cat of nine tails. It had a handle big enough for two hands, about this long. It had nine leather straps coming off the handle. They would take horsehair, they would tie rocks, they would tie bones, they would tie glass, they would tie wires all along these long strands of leather. But if that weren't enough, they would take a bucket of water and they would put the whole cat of nine tails in the water. They would soak up, the leather would soak up all that water. Why? Because it would make it heavier. So as they pull it out with water dripping, They would take with two hands and almost like you would a sledgehammer or an axe if you were cutting wood to keep yourself safe. They would swing out like this. They would come across, come down, latch into the skin with the bone, the glass, the wire. And then they wouldn't pull up. They They would yank down and flesh would fly. His flesh was mutilated, pulled away from his body. Not one time, but 13 times across this shoulder. 13 times across this shoulder. And 13 times down his spine. And I'll tell you why in a moment why they did that. Roman law would not allow somebody to be thrashed or scourged or whipped with a cat of nine tails, cat of nine tails more than 39 times. And the reason was because most people wouldn't even live to get to 39. But if they did live to 39, they weren't going to live at 40. So God took the most excruciating pain in that. So why did that have to happen to Jesus? That's the question. Well, Isaiah saw it 800 years before Christ experienced. And he tells us this. Number one, the whip, the whip was for our freedom in our body. He said, by his stripes. We are healed. In other words, Jesus not only paid a price for our sins on the cross, he paid a price for every sickness, every disease to bring us healing. By his stripes, every wound, every sickness, every disease, we can find healing through the power and the blood of Christ because he experienced the torture of the whip in his body. Pastor Red, are you trying to tell me that Jesus heals today? Yes, I am. You are a smart person. The great physician, my friend, has not closed shop. Jesus is the same today as he was yesterday, and he will be forevermore. Do you know what that means? It means if Jesus healed yesterday, Jesus heals today, and guess what? Jesus will heal forevermore. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. So here's the question that many pastors try to stay away from, but I'm going to answer for you today. Well, then, Rhett, why in the world does God not heal everybody? Why does God... Heal some people, but not everybody. I want you to know that is a great question. Three words for you. I don't know. I simply don't know. But what I do know is that God does heal. He heals some people on earth, and he heals some people in heaven. And I need you to understand this truth. I never really could understand this truth as well as I do today until my wife and I went through something Easter weekend of 2013. One of the worst weekends of our life, we got a call from our family in Texas. Linda's dad had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, tumors all in his body. He'd been given months to live and said, get your affairs in order. 
Us, as men and women of God who love God, we grieved the initial news, but then we began to muster the faith because our faith is in a God who heals. And his word says, by his stripes, we are healed. And despite the fact we couldn't understand, didn't change the fact that we were going to trust God. We began to pray, by his stripes, Lord, our Father is healed in Jesus' name. Prayed it over and over again, over and over and over again. Guess what? Six months later, miracle from God, doctor report, six months later go by, do a report, all the tumor is gone, all the cancer is gone. A miracle from God, amen? It was awesome. We were praising God. Thank you, Jesus, it's great. But then just due to accountability and going back to the doctor, just doing checkups as you know you would, six months later, did another scan. All the tumors have come back. In fact, it's even worse than it was before. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, my father-in-law, who was given literally two months to live, lived another two years, one of those years being with Linda and I in a time and season in Alabama. So why? Why did God heal him once? And why didn't he heal him again? I don't know. It's a great question. I'd love to ask God one day. But what I do know is 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins. In his body, where? On the cross. Why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. I want you to notice something. Jesus didn't just die for our sins. Look at the rest of the verse. By his wounds, you have been healed. Notice the verb. Notice the tense. Past tense. You have been healed. Not, well, maybe you're going to be. Or if you're lucky enough. Or if you say the right prayer. No, you have been healed by the wounds and the stripes that Jesus Christ bore on your back. You've been healed. This is what I know. And so if today you're dealing with sickness in your body, I just want you to know that Jesus paid a high price today for your healing. There is power in the blood of Jesus for the authority of Christ to rise up in your soul to heal your body. So here's the second thing that Jesus went through. And honestly, this this was really odd that this happened because this would have never happened. But Jesus' death was no ordinary death. What happened is after the scourging and the whipping, most people would have started to take their cross to the crucifixion scene. But it didn't happen for Jesus in this moment. What happened actually is the Roman guards took him to a place called the Praetorium. That's a fancy word, which basically means a tent for high-ranking officials or high-ranking guards. In other words, it would have been like a tent or a locker room environment for these Roman guards. And what happens next in this locker room environment is not only humiliating, but incredibly horrible. When they brought him into the tent, they began to mock him. They put a purple robe on him. And imagine the blood and the stain and the flesh that was hanging They put a purple robe on him. They put a staff in his hand. And they begin to go, hell, the king of the Jews. (laughs) Oh, if you're a prophet, prophesy to us. Who just hit you? They took the staff out of his hand. And the word of God says they begin to beat his head over and over again, smashing it, saying, come on, prophet. They blindfolded him. Who hit you? Tell us. Oh, hell, the king of the Jews. They would bow. They'd pretend to worship him. And all in this moment, as if it weren't enough, Another Roman soldier says, I got a good idea. He pulls a branch, a thorn branch, and he begins to weave while all that mockery and hitting and torture is happening to Christ. He begins to weave a thorn branch in the shape of a crown. Two inches. Two inch thorns. And they're like, hey guys, move out of the way. This will be fun. They put it on his skull. Two inches they begin to twist and push into his skull. Imagine the intense pain. Here Christ is, perfect, spotless, sinless, being tried at night. Nothing's wrong. He did nothing to deserve it. And here he is experiencing this most humiliating mockery and the pain of the thorns pushing into his skull. And not only would the blood begin to trickle down his face, but the blood would begin to go to his extremity of his mind. And he'd begin to experience intense pain that no other human being has ever experienced in their head. 800 years before Christ came, Isaiah saw this. This is what he said. He said, punishment that is on him will bring us peace. Guys, when it comes to pressure, when it comes to anxiety, when it comes to stress, when it comes to worry, where does all that happen? 
It happens in our mind. Where did he experience the pain? The thorns, number two, write it down. The thorns he endured to bring freedom in our minds. He endured to bring freedom in our minds. Listen, Jesus just didn't bring us salvation just so we could experience heaven. No, Jesus said in John 14, 27, look at this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. In other words, is it to say if you're not experiencing the peace of God, you're not experiencing everything God came to give you? I don't give it as the world gives, though. But don't let your hearts be troubled. No, don't be afraid. So, guys, if you're worried, if you're anxious, if you're stressed out today, I just want you to know there is power in the blood of Christ Jesus to bring peace to your mind. This is why I love Isaiah 26, 3. Guys, you will keep, God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind, whose thoughts are stayed on you. And I just want to make sure you've experienced the peace of God in every area of your life. Four things Christ experienced for your freedom. The whip was freedom for our body, for our healing. The thorns were freedom for our mind, for peace. So there was a third thing that happened after Jesus would have had the crown of thorns placed on his head. They would have began to have him proceed to the cross and to carry his cross some 2,000 feet to his death. But here's the thing. Jesus was so mutilated in such blood loss that he could barely walk himself and he could only carry it so far. And the Bible teaches us that there was a man along the road by the name of Simon of Cyrene in the Roman guards forced Simon to carry Jesus's cross all the way to the point of execution. And while all the way, I just want to notate this, during Jesus' mockery, during Jesus' punishment, Jesus never spoke a word. He said he kept his peace. That's why the word of God says some people said he was like a lamb being led to the slaughter. He was innocent. But yet he kept his peace in the moment. And so has... He approached the scene of where they called the skull, which was uh, Golgotha, the place of the skull is what the Bible refers to, the execution point. They would place Jesus on the cross on the ground. They probably just either pushed him down or threw him on the cross. And as he lay there, they pierced two places on his body. They pierced his hands, they pierced his feet. And by the way, I want you to understand that they probably wouldn't have put it through the palm of the hand because there's no bone there to keep from the weight of hanging it. It would have ripped his flesh and he would have fallen face forward. So there's a bone right here. And if you've ever seen an x-ray, there's a place right here where there's, it's open. It's like two bones come together and it's almost like a hanger. And so what they did, they pierced his wrist and they propped him up. And by the way, the cross wasn't designed. Like if you see pictures of the cross like this, that's inaccurate. The cross was not designed to do this. The cross was designed for their hands and the wrists to be up high. And their knees would have been bent like this. They pierced his hands, pierced his feet, knees would have been bent. Why? Because the purpose of the cross wasn't so that you would die of blood loss. The purpose of the cross wasn't so that you would die any other way than of suffocation. So what's happening? Remember the cat of nine tails. Here and here on the shoulders and down the spine of his back. He had no more muscles. He could barely muster the strength because his muscles were torn. And as he was trying to lift up, what what was he trying to do? He was trying to breathe. (gasps) (gasps) (sighs) 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 What do our hands and feet represent? Our hands represent every, everything we've ever done. What do our feet represent? Our feet represent every place we've ever gone. So what was Jesus doing? Well, 800 years, Isaiah saw it before it even happened. He said he was pierced for our transgression. And that's why, number three, the nails were freedom for your hands. In other words, what does that mean? It means every place where I've gone too far. Every place and for everything that I've ever done that is wrong and that is hurtful. Everything. 
I've ever done, everywhere I've ever gone, Jesus, by the power and the blood and the authority of Christ as the Son of God, paid for it on the cross. I have great news, everybody. You are not only forgiven of your sins. You ready for this? Look at this, Hebrews 8, 12. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Woo! Thank you, Jesus. But this is so hard for us to understand. Why? Because the truth is, many of us in this room, we love God. Many of this room, we've been forgiven. And we know that God remembers it no more. But here's the problem. We don't allow ourselves to forgive or forget ourselves. So we carry the cycle of shame and guilt. We're free. God's forgiven. God remembers no more. But we are still in this human bondage of cycling in our mind over and over and over again. The mental prison of shame and guilt of our past. And that's why I'm telling you, the blood of Jesus not only forgives you of your sins, the blood of Jesus not only remembers your sins no more. Look at this, Hebrews 9, 14. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will also purify our minds. Purifies our conscience. He purifies us from the shame of our past, from the guilt of our past, from the sinful deeds. Why? So that we can worship and walk in a relationship with the living God, free. Some of you love God. In this room, you're good people. You know your sins are forgiven, but you're still carrying shame. You're still carrying guilt from everything you've ever done and everything in every place you've ever gone. And I just want you to understand that Jesus not only died for your sins, but he died so that you could find freedom from guilt through the power of his blood and the power of the cross. And so finally, we get to the point at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. It has been the ninth hour, according to scripture. And Jesus, hanging on the cross. (gasps) Father, (gasps) into your hands. (gasps) I commit my spirit. The word of God said he breathed his last breath. One thing I need you to know about Roman crucifixions is that a lot of them, a lot of the people that were crucified None of them were crucified like Christ was. In fact, that they would go on to live for several days hanging on the cross. And because of that, two or three days in, the Romans would come up to be merciful. And remember, their knees were bent. They would put a rod or spear behind their knee and they would use it as leverage and they would break their kneecaps so that they would immediately fall to where they could no longer push themselves up. But not Jesus. Scripture says that no, when the Roman soldiers came up to Jesus, they looked because he died a lot sooner than most people die. So just to be sure that he was dead, they did something that they never do before. They took a spear, they put it up under his rib cage. Actually, this rib. Put it under his rib cage. And they pierced and jabbed his heart. And then when they released the spear, blood and water flowed out of his chest cavity. Every detail in scripture is important and on purpose. Medical science today would tell us that when blood and water in the chest cavity of the heart means your heart has been ruptured. Jesus was already dead. He did not die from the spear. He was already dead. So how did Jesus die? Did Jesus die from blood loss? Did Jesus die from suffocation? Did he die from the pain? My friends, Jesus died because his heart was broken. His heart was broken for humanity. Isaiah said he was crushed for our iniquities. And I just wonder how many of you are here today and you've ever had your heart broken. I wonder how many of you here today have ever had your heart broken through divorce, through pain, through disappointment, through a business failure. I know what pain is like. I've had my heart broken in my life several times. Guys, he knew we would go through this stuff. God knew we would go through this kind of pain. So what did he do? He chose to experience it himself so he could pay for it. Number four, last one, the spear. What does it represent? It represents freedom God wants to bring to our heart. Jesus not only died to pay for our sins so we could go to heaven, he died so he could heal your broken heart. 
Psalm 147.3, and then we'll close. He heals the brokenhearted. And look at this. He binds up their wounds. Jesus wants to give you healing in your body. Jesus wants to give you healing in your mind. Jesus wants to free you from your past. Jesus wants to heal your heart, everyone. Will you bow your head and close your eyes? Please, nobody moving around. We'll be here just another few minutes. I want to pray for you. Pray in this moment. Jesus, I want to thank you so much for the highest price that you paid for us so that we could experience more than just heaven, but so that we could experience freedom in every area of our life. But we know, God, that we can only have them if we surrender our lives to you. You're not looking for religious duty. God, no, no. You're looking for a relationship. And God, that's why I pray that over these next few moments that there will be people who will make a decision to give their life to you once and for all. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around, I promise I'm not gonna embarrass you in any way, but if you're here today and you know you're far from God and you know that your life isn't right with God, but you would like to make it right by simply repenting, turning from your old ways and surrendering your life to Jesus and making him your Lord. If that's you, man, it would be the joy and honor of my life to lead you in a prayer right where you're sitting. So if you're here today, you're like, Pastor Rhett, that's me. I wanna surrender my life to Jesus today. Would you be so bold to raise your hand? Nobody's looking around. God bless you. Nobody's looking around. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? Would you say a simple prayer like this and just mean it with all your heart and say, Jesus, I need you. Today, I surrender my life to you. I give you everything. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died, were buried, and rose again to pay for my sin. I believe that you're the Christ. I believe that you break every yoke of bondage off my life. Forgive me, change me, transform me. Today, I put my faith in you, give you my life. Now pray this, say, Holy Spirit, I receive you. Empower me to make a difference with my life. In Jesus' name. Hey, everybody, hang with me. We're gonna close the service a little bit different than we normally do, but I do wanna draw your attention to a couple of things before we do. Number one, if you said that prayer, congratulations. Way to go. Man, greatest decision of your life. So proud of you. Welcome to the family. I just want you to know there's some next steps for you to take. And the way I can help you with that next step is if you would, if I could help draw your attention to that worship guide in that worship guide, remember the connection card we talked about? There's a place on there that you can mark that card to let us know you made that decision. You can put that in a container as you end today. What's gonna happen if I put my name on a card, Brad, and, put, and let you know? One email, that's it. I'm not gonna call you. I'm not gonna show up at your house. I just wanna send you one simple email with some next steps. An incredible next step would be water baptism, by the way. What's water baptism? It's a public declaration of your faith in Christ. Salvation is a private moment. That's between you and the Lord. That is exactly what just happened right now. But water baptism, we call it the wedding band of Christianity. I wear a wedding band to say, hey, I'm taken. My life belongs to Linda. Water baptism says, hey, I'm taken. My life belongs to Jesus Christ. And I wanna encourage you. Maybe you've been baptized before, but maybe, maybe it wasn't as significant as it should have been. I wanna encourage you to get baptized. If you've never been baptized, I wanna encourage you to get baptized. Sunday, April the 11th, go to our website, click the button, all the details, register, 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 and our team will connect with you. And it's gonna be a lot of fun. It's gonna be a celebratory moment. All right, I told you we're gonna close the service a little bit differently than we have before. I'm gonna draw your attention. If you look at about your right foot underneath your chair, there's gonna be a little cup. There's juice in the cup and there's a little wafer on top of the cup. So today, as we close the service, what we're gonna do is we're gonna remember what Christ has done for us. How? By celebrating communion. And this is very important. I need everybody to understand this. What is communion? You ready for it? Very simple. It's a moment of remembrance that we do together as a family. You will never see communion being taken alone. It's always taken together as a family. What does it say? It says, we're gonna remember Christ's death until he comes. And by the way, the Bible never tells us how often we should take communion. It just says, when you do it, just remember me, remember me. Now listen to me, this is very important. The Bible is very clear that this is a moment between those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So if you're here today and you've never surrendered your heart to Christ and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand there's no condemnation. We love you. You're our family. We love you. We're for you. We're so glad that you're here, okay? 
but I don't want you to feel any pressure. I don't want you to feel any obligation to partake in something that scripture teaches that is just for those who profess faith in Christ. Okay? So it's totally okay if you don't want to participate and you're always welcome here. But guys, this is a moment for those who have professed faith in Christ Jesus. And so I'm going to draw your attention to this cup. I'm going to give you a little instruction here. And by the way, there should have been one under every seat. If you did not receive one under your seat, our ushers are prepared to serve you with that. If you just would like to raise your hand as I kind of go through these instructions, our ushers will be glad to serve you. You can go ahead and do that now. So I want to read a verse that comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23. And by the way, there's, there's a first layer of the cracker, and then there's a layer for the juice. And before I forget, can I just remind everybody that there's nothing holy about this cracker and there's nothing holy about this juice. It's a cracker and it's juice, okay? But what it symbolizes is holy. The cracker, the piece of bread, it represents Jesus's body. That was broken for us. In other words, it represents his life. And here in a moment, as we take it, what is it saying? It's saying, I recognize that God gave me his life for my life. I'm proud to be a Christian. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ Jesus and the power and authority of his blood of what he's done for me. I'm a Christian. This is what it says. Let's read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 through 26. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. When you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat. So if you'll peel back that second layer to that way you can partake of the juice here in a moment. So what the bread represents his life, what does the juice represent? It represents his blood. And the power of his blood is what we talked about today. Who does what? He forgives all my sins and remembers them no more. He heals my body. He heals my mind. He redeems me. He restores me. He heals my life. He brings healing in my heart. Look at the rest of the verse. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, now this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood. When you do this, when you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink. I want to pray. Father, I thank you so much for your great love for us. You are a good God. There's no greater joy than remembering all that you've done for us to bring us into a relationship with you. And as we remember today, We remember not only what you've done, but we remember the resurrection and the fact, God, that you are coming again soon. And we can't wait to see you face to face. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, guys, we had some decisions for Jesus today. Can we throw our hands together and celebrate right now all across this room? Come on. Yeah.